online. Buzz.bournemouth.ac.uk For Bournemouth and beyond, this is Buzz. What is the right way to protest? Do people know enough about protesting? Does protesting even solve anything? In today's chat, we will be discussing these questions and finding out if Bournemouth's voice is loud enough. I'm Gracie Leader. And I'm Tom Lawrence. Have you ever been to a protest, Tom? So, Gracie, I have been to a protest. Last year, I went to a protest which was against the drilling for oil in Pool Bay. Basically, an oil rig showed up, which was right in the view of Bournemouth Beach. And they started drilling for oil there. And obviously, that has a lot of impact, not only to the skyline, as it's quite an eyesore, but also it has an environmental impact, obviously. And people were quite, you know, they had quite strong opinions about this. Mm. What was the day like? Did the protest work in the end? or It was definitely a worthwhile experience for me because there was a lot of passionate people and a lot of very intelligent people there um, with a lot of very good opinions. Um, unfortunately, I feel, felt like the, the protest wasn't able to achieve what it set out to achieve because they didn't really have any authority against the people who owned it. And the, uh, the oil rig was still actually came back, is still set to come back in the end. So Yeah. But of course, protests aren't a new thing. They've actually been taking place for centuries. And Jacob Green is here with us. I'm going to bring him in. And he's able to talk with us a little bit more about the history of protests and whether protesting has proved successful in the past. So, Jacob, do we know when the first protests were? So one of the first recorded protests was around 400 BC, actually when the Spartans invaded and enslaved a race of people called the Helots. Now, the Helots, they were a local race. And when the Spartans came along, they were treated appallingly. Uh, The Spartans would basically use them for slavery and they would slaughter them uh, at certain times of year for practice for war. Uh, The Helots did try to rebel and try to overthrow some of the Spartans. Uh, They would do this by stealing from them. Uh, However, they were unsuccessful and every time they did, the Spartans would kill them mercilessly. Uh, It's possible that protests took place before this, but we don't have any records to actually prove that. Are there any protests in history that stand out as being the biggest or maybe the most important? So there are a number of protests that have had huge influence across countries and some have even had an international impact. Uh, One particular protest that stands out is something called the Boston Tea Party. Uh, In the 18th century, the British, who were in charge of America at the time, reintroduced a law concerning uh, tea, which effectively gave them control of all the tea plantations in America. This was a crushing financial blow for the Americans and they were really struggling to, to kind of stay on the world stage. So a group of men led by Samuel Adams snuck onto a British ship and they dumped 342 chests of tea into the sea. Now, this was seen as an act of war by the British and this soon led to the American War of Independence, which is a huge part of our history. Uh, the, Re- the French Revolution is also a key point in the history of protest. After years of oppression and abuse, the peasants of France decided to rebel and attempt to overthrow the aristocrats and royalty. They were successful and rounded up virtually all the rich and publicly, publicly executed them. Uh, the revolution transformed the social structures of France and the effects can still be seen today. There are other ones that stand out, like Apartheid and Martin Luther King Jr. and, of course, a Reformation protest in Britain. But those were just some of the main ones that stand out. Yeah, of course. And are there many protests that have taken place in Bournemouth in particular? So it's funny that you ask. Actually, the last couple of months alone, we've had a few protests take place. Uh, One that was just in the beginning of September. Uh, Boris Johnson, as I'm sure you'll know, uh, prorogated Parliament and people took to the streets in their hundreds as a protest against this. 
and perhaps a little bit closer to home and a little bit more of interest, as you mentioned earlier, we had that oil rig plantation uh, protest. However, it was unsuccessful. And I think that brings us on to the point that some of these protests can be wonderfully successful. The French Revolution, as I mentioned earlier, can change the whole way the country was run and the social structure. However, we also have the Bournemouth oil rig protests, which shows that unless they're running the right way, they really just don't have an impact. Thank you very much, Jacob. So, with all this history and the Act 11's right to protest, it's no wonder that protesting is a popular way for people to get their message across. Dorset for Europe gives Bournemouth civilians the opportunity to protest with everyone else, and we've got Rich Douglas from the group in the studio to talk more talk more with us. So, the inevitable question: Do you think protesting is an effective way to get your message or point across? Sorry, first, uh, thanks for having me. Um, yes, absolutely. I think that uh, protest is an effective way to get our message out, to, to put it out to as many people as possible, to increase our visibility, especially with the, the filter of the media out there that sometimes um, the points that we want to make or uh, raise just aren't aren't pushed out via the, the mainstream media. So the only way to, to bring them to people's attention is, is through... Uh, putting it onto the streets and and shouting. Um, last week was a, a great example in London where there wasn't much chance of Parliament ignoring us because they'd been able to hear us in the chamber as they were debating. You know, the, we were a, a noisy million people in in the centre mm-hmm. of London. Obviously, Dorset for Europe was only part of that. Um, but you know, I I didn't used to think this. I I, I thought actually sometimes protests weren't that effective. Um, but I've I've come to realise actually if if you want to change something some sort of social injustice where maybe the majority of people didn't initially agree with you, you've you've kind of got to get out there and and demonstrate and have conversations. You know, it's not just about tearing up the streets and uh, making a, a, a turning into a riot. It's it's actually about having conversations with people and changing people's minds. Um, and that's that's what we're we're trying to do. We, you know, we, the same as any other uh, protest movement in history. You know, as Jacob was mentioning, there's a few, but yeah, I think of uh, the Black Civil Rights Movement or Women's Suffrage. There are so many different protest movements mm-hmm. against social injustices where the majority didn't agree, but were were brought round by the protest movement. Yeah, and how did Dorset for Europe come about? Do you think there was a lack of opportunities in Bournemouth specifically? Um, I I think that there were a lot of people in Bournemouth that felt. Um, that the vote had had been unfairly won. You know, there was there was lots of things around that. The way it was funded, the uh, the arguments that Vote Leave made that were were quite clearly um, as often people talk about them as unicorns. You know, ne- never going to exist. Mm. Um, and you know, that to do something about it before it was too late. The vote itself was a was a big moment, but actually, until we leave. We still feel that the issue's open, and I think a lot of other people do. Actually, more and more people have been coming around to, to support us, I think. Yeah. So on the 23rd of March, you helped transport hundreds of Dorset locals to London to take part in the People's Vote March. How did this go? Do you think it was successful, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, we had uh, 10 coaches um, all filled, um, and when a couple of people dropped out, there were people ready to take their place mm-hmm. to go. Um, so, you know, we've got 500-plus people up from Dorset to London, um, and join that that million uh, those million people protesting in London. You know, I've I've never seen so many people in one place. Mm. Um, with the, the the people that were there filling all the way from Parliament Square up to uh, St James's Palace. Um, so yeah, I thought it went really well. We got a lot of people out, and ultimately the politicians were forced to do some sort of listening. Is there anything you've ever seen at a protest that shocked you? So I've not uh, been involved in that many protests. I, I actually got involved at the, the beginning of September one with uh, the uh, prorogation of Parliament, um, and you know I've 
I've seen people come up and shout at us. I've not seen any of our protesters do anything particularly shocking. Uh, first time I got up on a stage, I had a, a um, heckler run up in front of me and start screaming in my face. Um, and that was quite quite difficult to overcome. But uh, yeah, there were a few hecklers last week. But actually, by and large, it's a pretty peaceful protest and everybody just wants to, to change the political situation by legal means. Yeah. Um, so yeah, not not seen anything that shocking. Do you have any future plans for protests? Yeah, absolutely. So Dorset for Europe are planning on protesting every weekend if we can. So there are street stalls um, that, that go out in um, in Bournemouth and Boscombe and New Forest. Um, and uh, we, we're going to keep those going. But we're expecting there'll be another big People's Vote March in London um, before the, the end of January. Now that extension's been been agreed but uh yeah we'll we'll keep protesting keep trying to get our message across to people until we've either won the the uh the issue or we've we've lost and there's nothing we can do but i think it'll be going for a while thank you very much so we couldn't talk about protesting without mentioning extinction rebellion this movement began in london a year ago and it's come a long way what started as a plan for a small gathering in Parliament Square soon became a powerful movement with over a thousand people showing up. Since then, the cause has spread worldwide and nearly 5,000 events have been organised across the globe. And now millions of people are voicing their concerns about the future of the planet. So are they being acknowledged? Well, maybe it's their choice of protest style. As I'm sure many of you are aware by now, these protesters don't like to sit back and wait around. The Extension Rebellion claims to, and I quote, use non-violent methods to cause civil disobedience. This has involved gluing themselves to the streets and disrupting public transport. But have they achieved their goals of taking actions against the climate crisis? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. One year on, and although the movement has grown, the message has not changed. But maybe that's not a bad thing. You could say that Extinction Rebellion have raised concern for the climate crisis in this country. Mm. A YouGov survey recently revealed that between 2016 and 2019, which are the years that Extinction Rebellion was formed and then expanded, the percentage of UK citizens concerned about the environment has rose from 9% to now 25%. But is this really enough? Well, we're joined now by Zahura Plummer, who is part of the Extinction Rebellion. Hiya. Hello. Hello, hi. Hiya. So could you tell us how far you think the Extinction Rebellion movement has come in the past year? I think it's been extraordinary. It's been the most uh, fast-growing, vibrant movement that I've ever seen, um, let alone been part of. And I think it's really important to remember just how young it is. So the declaration of rebellion when people met in Parliament Square was actually on the 31st of October last year. So we're not even a year old. And if you kind of count that as our like conception, you know, um, as a baby, we, um, you know, we were only just really been born in August. We'd barely been turning over. Um, and so I think it's really important to remember just just how quickly it's going. And so our achievements in light of that, I think, are extraordinary. Like um, that that figure that you quoted from YouGov is brilliant. Mm-hmm. So one quarter of people um, think it's like a, a, a strongly concerned about climate breakdown. And that's the highest it's ever been in, in the UK. And it's consistently high now. Um, so it's, it's stayed high. And that's really important for electoral, for, for electoral things as well. Um, and I don't think it's just Extinction Rebellion. I think there's also the school strikers and the Greta Thunberg effect mm-hmm. and the David Attenborough documentary. So I, I you know, couldn't possibly claim credit for all of it. And you <laughs> yeah. know, 20, 30 years of um, brilliant climate change campaigning that you know lots of other NGOs and charities have done um, but it's definitely I think it's changed the conversation mm. and I think from just the number of people the sheer number of people my own personal story of people who said 
I've been working on this for ages or I've been worried about this for ages or I've been working with Friends of the Earth for 20 years mm-hmm. and I always felt like it was something I couldn't talk about or I couldn't do anything about only apart from my own kind of personal living. Um, it was one of those like turn-off issues that no one wanted to kind of discuss. You know, there was this sort of deafening silence around this huge thing. And now I feel empowered to do something about it. And people are just, you know, I used to be afraid of talking to my friends about climate change and now I'm like banging on about it all the time. And they're much more receptive than I thought. You know, I was always worried, but now, um, you know, and, and it's, it's been really supportive. So I think those that seed that has been planted, once you've woken yeah, up, definitely. that seed is very hard to, to stop um, growing. Mm. Yes, it's been it's been a really huge, huge achievement. Mm. Um, so earlier this month, the Extension Rebellion faced backlash from commuters over the disruption of the London Underground. What was your reaction to this? Do you think the backlash was justified? or? Well, I don't think the violent backlash was justified. I mean, pulling no. people off trying to beat them up was not justified in virtually any circumstance unless they mm-hmm. were like trying to do something really awful. But um, I think the tube action was really problematic. I didn't support it myself, and very mm-hmm. large numbers of um, Extinction Rebellion rebels didn't, I would say, probably... Over ninety percent didn't support it or didn't support it in that play in that way. Um, it was very problematic also because of the location. I think that was probably for me that's yeah. the biggest issue with it. I think doing it in Canning Town was seriously, seriously misguided. Um, instead of, I mean, some obvious places to do it would have been like Sloane Square or or Knightsbridge somewhere that's very obviously associated with people with extremely high carbon footprints mm. and not people who are desperately trying to get to work to in order to make ends meet. Um, but more than anything, I don't think we should disrupt public transport. Like my personal opinion is that any disruption that you do, because disruption is difficult, it has to make immediate sense to people. Yeah. And disrupting public transport obviously doesn't. Like public transport is a very, very big part of a net carbon, you know, a zero carbon world. So I was not very um, in favour of it at all. But I think that it is shame that that's the most talked about thing from yeah. the rebellion. Like, it's, there's two weeks of incredible actions. Yeah. We had mothers nursing their babies outside Google, hundreds and hundreds of mothers breastfeeding their babies outside this enormous corporate that funds climate denial. And, and like, incredible young people on the roof of YouTube and wanting them to change their algorithms about yeah. videos and where people get their information from on YouTube and, and, and all kinds of things that happened. And, bank, you know, the one that happened at Bank, the financial, targeting the financial district, and a lot of the banks that invest in the fossil fuel industry and we had the, the rabbi who, who was, you know, prayed in the road and was arrested. So there's some really, really powerful, intergenerational, beautiful moments. Yeah, definitely. The tube, the tube is the thing that people will remember, which yeah. is um, just really, it's just a huge, huge shame for us. But we will, we are changing. We're, we're reflecting quite significantly. People are quite um, looking at things quite significantly and how decisions are made um, during the, the weeks of the action as well. And yeah. Power within the organisation. Um, what would you say is the ideal method of protesting then? Well, I don't think there is an ideal method of protesting. I mean, because protesting is like for anything. I mean, people can protest. I think people should be allowed to protest for almost any cause as long as it's not inciting racial hatred or, or is violent or whatever. So I don't, and I think it depends how, I think it does depend a bit on what your cause is. So I would say non-violent direct action is justified because of the time um, component of climate acting on climate change so other so and that's a really unique thing about about climate and ecological breakdown that i think people just don't quite grasp so with other awful awful things like the housing crisis or racism or all kinds of things there's no tipping point there's no point where beyond which if you take action you can't stop it or you can't change it whereas with climate change we are literally to say we're at five minutes to midnight is not hyperbole like we have got to act in the next 
in the next few years to yeah. reduce our carbon emissions very significantly by 2030. And if we don't do that, then we are in a very irreversible set where we really are at the hands of physics and chemistry. Yeah. And that's very different from another social justice kind of cause or, or, or thing. And so with climate and ecological breakdown, like we've, I mean, we, I went on a climate march, I organised a climate march when I was out of university 15 years ago and yeah. we did things like we you know we rallied and we did protests and we did placards and we did petitions and we wrote to mps and we did lobbying and we had all stickers you know we did all of that we had social media campaigns like it's not like we haven't tried it it's not like yeah. we just the first thing we came up with was like i know let's go sit in the street and glue ourselves or something i mean no, the exactly. first time that, that people have been trying to get something some action on climate change just since the early 80s yeah. and scientists known about the greenhouse effects since I think the first president who was briefed on it was in fact Lyndon Johnson in, in, mm. in the Vietnam War so I think it, the protest method has to be proportionate to the I would say the urgency not yeah. the importance the, they're two different things important and urgent are two are two different things and the climate issue is both important and urgent um, so yeah so things have to be proportional okay that's so helpful thank you very much thank you for that so I'm now joined in the studio by Nathan Auger, who's also a member of Extinction Rebellion. So Nathan, what can you tell us about your involvement with the group? Um, my involvement with the group is um, uh, I've actually part of the fundraising part. So recently we've just had a fundraiser for um, the Cerrado and Amazon in Brazil for the locals, uh, which involved uh, raising money so that they can uh, buy uh, solar panels. So that way they don't have to disrupt the dams and that allows Cerrado to keep growing and flourishing. And what made you join Extinction Rebellion? Um, basically, my concern for the cl- like climate. Initially, it was um, pool, uh, the the pool drilling for mm. oil and stuff. That that really like, made me quite angry because there was not really much point to having that much more oil, oil considering we've really got enough to last us our lifetime anyway. Yeah. So uh, some members, in terms of protesting, have gone to extreme methods such as gluing themselves to the ground and disruption of cities. What do you think about this kind of approach towards protesting? Um, Again, I agree with... um, I I believe that it wasn't... (laughs) like A a lot of Extinction Rebellion disagreed with that action because it disrupted uh, public transport and it disrupted a lot of people who don't really have control of those laws um so i believe that gluing yourself to that tube was probably not ideal mm-hmm. and a lot of extinction rebellion strongly disagreed with it whereas i believe that if you were protesting outside say shell or another mm-hmm. large corporate business then that would be more ideal because that's the people that do have the power to change the future thank you very much nathan For the past months, millions of people have rallied in the streets of Hong Kong, protesting against the government. Recently, we've seen images of armed forces jumping from helicopters, shooting live at the crowds, and violent clashes between authorities and locals. We are now joined by Martina Kano to tell us a bit about how the protests started. Well, Tom, the controversy began over dispute over extradition rights between Taiwan, Hong Kong and China, but it's now sparked into a debate about power in the region. Hong Kong is considered to be a special autonomous region of China, meaning they're under the control of Chinese government, but their influence is limited to foreign affairs and defense. 
And unlike Chinese citizens, Hong Kong natives have freedom of press, speech and assembly, in addition to their own currency, passport and language. However, the region is scheduled to fully emerge with China by 2047. The extradition bill is perceived as a threat to Hong Kong local rights and has sparked fear amongst the residents that their time as a free state is further shortened, leading to the protests we've seen. Despite the fact that the proposed bill has been drawn, it sparked a pro-democratic movement which have led to additional amounts, such as the release of arrests of, of arrested protesters, an inquiry of police brutality that has occurred during the protests, free and fair elections, Currently, the demonstrators are labelled as rioters, which they don't identify and wish to get that label removed. Looking back, historically, this is not the first time Hong Kong has sought freedom from China. Back in 2003, there was a protest against a proposed law that would punish people for speaking out against China. In 2014, there was Occupy Movement, also known as the Umbrella Movement, where people sought increased electoral freedom in the region. Although the extradition bill that originally sparked the protest has been scrapped, there is no reason to believe the protests in Hong Kong will stop before all the demands are met. We are now joined by Paul McCuse, who went to Hong Kong recently. So, Paul, could you give us a description of what you saw during your time at Hong- in Hong Kong? Sure, yeah. I went predominantly on holiday, but also to visit friends. So, um, I suppose my friend, one of my friends was staying in Nathan Road, um, so, and uh, we travelled sort of mainly between the island and, and the mainland between Central, for those people that know where Central is, and uh, and Tunxi. So the the main thing that we observed in terms of sort of escalation or de-escalation was that we believed before, well, I certainly believed before I went, that most of the issues were, were predominantly being generated by the younger element of Hong Kong East. That's certainly not true. It was a, a very big cross-section of the community. And when I say very big, I'm talking thousands. Um, so but, could you give us a description of what you saw during your time at Hong Kong? Yeah, certainly. We Nathan Road was actually closed down um, for a vast portion of the Tuesday that we were there. Um, all the buses were stopped. All the MTR was, was closed down. Um, the troops were on the street with um, live weapons. Um, there was a deployment of tear gas. Um, but what we saw from the protesters, in, in, in certainly my, from my view, was a peaceful demonstration or an attempt at a peaceful demonstration. Um, and, you know, in terms of any reaction, the reaction was in direct line to obviously rounds or tear gas being thrown at the protesters. So um, very disappointing from, from, from the point of view, obviously, coming from the UK, where, you know, we have a right to peacefully protest, um, to see what I describe as an overreaction by the authorities, to be honest, in, in, in line with them. So some people have said that it could be dangerous because of police brutality. So why did you choose to get involved in this, despite the risk? Well, I think when people do nothing, um, when it doesn't highlight anything, um, and to just stand on the sidelines, I mean, I happen to be there for... And not, I didn't go specifically for that, but to just sit on the sidelines really isn't acceptable. I come from a, a very different background. I'm an ethnic minority myself, Caribbean, and um, you know, growing mm-hmm. up, I've seen a few things. But the difference is, as I say, in the UK, there is a enshrined right to, to peaceful protest, and I don't like it when people are bullied in any way, shape, or form. So I find it very hard to just stand by when you see that. So. I didn't feel at risk, certainly from the protesters, because my view of the protesters was they were absolutely lovely and great to us. Um, certainly on the White Star Ferry, they were having a sing-song on the way across on one particular day, and the pro-Chinese 
were the ones that were being more aggressive, uh, and the only reaction was to sing louder. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's 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 not something where you, as a tourist or or, or as a visitor, I believe, if, if you're logical, are going to be particularly concerned. The only time you're going to be concerned is if you're in the middle between the protesters and the troops or the the, the police and the authorities, because as I say, they're using live ammunition, they're using live weapons. Um, and they're using water cannon, obviously, with coloured water, a bit like we do with smart water here, which um, is purely so they can go and sweep people up afterwards and pick them off one by one, um, which which doesn't indicate really that anything's going forward in terms of what the people are looking for. And yeah. I think the reason it's kicked off so badly is that this is just one of a number of things that the Chinese as a government have done um, in breaking the one state, two policies, which was agreed. Um, you know, they've already started going back on those promises. And so I understand why simply, um, you know, pairing back on, on the rule of transferring prisoners to the mainland is, is not simply enough because that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, and how do you think the situation's going to develop? Unfortunately, I don't think well. The one thing that I certainly know from, from my work, um, and I've worked with um, a number of... Um, countries that, that, that have a, an eastern outlook is that there is this massive thing which we call face in the west and they do not like losing face now even though neither do the hong kongers um they are facing uh, massively overwhelming odds if they are trying to take the chinese on um peaceful protest is the only option to them but now they've had the 700 year ceremony with which they probably anybody listening realizes they cancelled the fireworks because of concerns there as well um they they really all bets are off uh, and, and certainly the view of myself and my friends is it's a matter of time before china step in uh, and, and if they do that they kill the goose that laid the golden egg so just not on that format but on so many formats a lot of things have been holding them back because already from speaking to business people that i know out there businesses are relocating to singapore um, the ones that are happy to stay in China are going to Shanghai, but they are they are going to kill Hong Kong if they're not very careful, and that will financially impact to a degree, but it's not the only financial centre within China. Thank you very much. And now we're joined in the studio by two members from BU Hong Kong Society. Thank you for joining us. No worries. Um, so I just wanted to ask, what's your opinion on the behaviour of both the protesters, but also the response from the authorities? Um, right, um, so... The protest has a really long history. It started from J- June, where um, the protest was still really peaceful. Mm. We demonstrated in the streets. Um, we had slogans. Um, it's the only demand was um, to um, withdraw the extradition bill, and then the government did not respond in any way um, that we um, hoped they will. Mm. Um, they had a official um, announcement. And that was pretty much it. And uh, obviously, we weren't happy with that. And um, from there, the actions um, kind of um, progressed in some way. Um, mm. So it obviously it became a bit more violent than mm. um, it originally was. Um, so obviously, the peaceful um, demonstrate demonstrations. I'm hundred percent happy with that. But because the government did not respond it became a bit more violent um i me personally i don't really agree with the actions but because of what their government did 
it, I think the government uh, the actions were justified. Yeah. Um, and I think that's sort of my view on that. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of the five demands that the protest that the protesters um, are sort of proposing, I agree with most of them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, I do. Yeah. I think most of them are kind of justified. And there's one that says um, you have to release all the protesters. I don't necessarily agree with that because I think if they sort of um, they did not follow the laws. They have to be punished. Yeah. But at the same time, I think the, if the police did something wrong, they have to be punished as well. Yeah. Um, and if the police weren't punished, I don't think the protesters have to be punished. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's um, my view on and yeah. that. What do you think, Jessica? Yeah, I think during this four month protest, indeed, both police and the protesters did level up their force because of this build. However, how the police apply uh, appropriate force and then with conducting indiscriminate arrests lead to more general public suffering and most of the arrestors being treated unfairly. I think this is not really accepted by us all of us all of us. And then they sprayed pepper spray on protesters face right like right, right on their face. Mm -hmm. And then even journalists fight fine tear gas in very short distance and targeting their head which they are not following following the guidelines properly. And then there were field people's eyes were injured. An 18-year-old boy was shot in the chest with a live bullet. <coughs> the protesters and general public cannot do anything to complain on the violence, but because the police do not have any, uh, they, don't, they did not show any numbers or warning card to prove that their police are doing on duty, which we cannot do anything to complain or to do anything to fight for ourselves. Yeah. So and I think what we are asked for is just five demands, and I think I agree with that. We are, we used to have large scale peaceful protests, but which I also joined before. Mm -hmm. They are very peaceful, and we just shouting a slogan, and then like we want more people aware of this issue because it's really affect our individuals, but not mm -hmm. just Hong Kong, and then. But the government, like Jonathan said, uh, they don't have any responses. And then, yeah, they they did have some press conference and then have some uh, platform dialogue to check with our general public. Like they would say, I will listen to your opinion, but they did nothing about that. We yeah. can't see any action from the Hong Kong government. And by then they carry out a more uh, critical law is the anti-mask law which uh, I think we Hong Kong people won't accept this. Mm. Mm -hmm. Do you think the protesters will eventually achieve getting these five demands, or can you see it being resolved in a different way? Um, personally, I don't think all the demands are going to be meet, uh, met, but yeah. that's only because how the government is now. Mm. Um, well, obviously, I hope all the demands will be met eventually, but... Um, just by looking at how it's going now, I don't think it's it's going to be achieved. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I also agree with Jonathan. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's really can achieve, but I think at least some of them need to be really applied, like the how police play in violence and then need to be really arrested or have punishment. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much.
Um, so one of the stories that we saw from the Hong Kong riots was of um, a small boy who had been um, tear gassed during um, the anti um, anti police riots. Um, this is really quite shocking and it really begs the question of if we should allow our children to participate in riots and does this ultimately lie in the hands of their parents? I mean, it's a different, a bit different, but uh, the one protest I went to about the oil rig, there were children there, but it's hard to tell whether the children were there for their own legitimate reasons mm. or whether it's just the parents who had forced them to come. Yeah, I think for a smaller local issue like that, it can almost be seen as like a family day out. But for the bigger riots, like the Hong Kong riots or the Extension Rebellion, it can become quite violent and unsafe. So should the police or even parents be cracking down on who can attend? We received a statement which was from Georgina Cool at Pool Climate Campaigners, and they're a youth group who take part in many climate strike protests in Bournemouth. She said that if we sat on the sidelines and didn't do anything until we're older, then nothing would happen. Many adults say that we should be in school instead, but I think that if we don't take action now, then we might not have a future. And we now have Lola Ashwood. She was only 15 when she started protesting for People's Vote, Extinction Rebellion and Marches to Freedom. Um, so how do you find the atmosphere of the protests? Hi, um, so for me personally, I've usually felt that the atmospheres are quite positive. Um, I've only ever gone to protests in London um, and I usually will go up with a group of friends because we all feel passionately about what we're going to be marching or protesting for. And um, I mean, obviously there are going to be mixed um, feelings about the protests from the people in the area, but uh, usually it's kind of a place that unites people and... um, you recognise actually how many people do care for the thing that you're you're doing. So uh, personally, I've usually had a pretty positive um, atmosphere, yeah. And what about the public and the commuters who are going about their daily routines? Do you have a negative or a positive reaction from them typically? Um, I think it can be quite mixed. Uh, when I first started going, I don't think they were as uh, big, um, and even policemen would kind of uh, tell us messages of support and say that they supported what we were doing. Um, I think when you get to maybe busier areas where there's lots of tourists, it can become almost an attraction. A lot of people video and things. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's mixed because there obviously are people that are frustrated, but also they're being confronted with kind of facts and messages Um, about things that are going on around them. So I think it's a moment of realisation for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, As a young person who takes part in protests, do you feel that you are represented in the media? Um, I do think that we are more, um, but whether it's as positive as we'd like, I'm not sure. Obviously, Greta Thunberg is um, taking over the media with her activism and... It's a great thing. It's encouraged so much um, uh, that's going on at the moment. But also, you could argue that there are a lot of negative ways of looking about uh, at her and that actually we are being noticed, but um, it's not in a serious way, maybe. Mm. Um, thank you for speaking with us today, Leila. Um, so Greta Thunberg is definitely a key figure, particularly for young people. We referenced her earlier in the programme. Despite being 
Too young to vote in most countries, Greta has worked this year to influence the minds of some of the most important politicians in the world. At just 16, she has spoken in front of the UN, the EU and the US Congress about climate change. But she has faced backlash from many who feel she's too young and it's her parents who have formed these views for her. I mean, it's an interesting argument, but I do feel a slightly basic one. It's clear from the passion in her voice that she really, really, truly believes in this cause. In a way, Greta's now moved from an activist to more of a cultural icon. I mean, the video of her giving Trump, you know, that look really exploded on Twitter and that's become almost a symbol of her movement Mm. now. Yeah, and the 1995's new song that was literally released this week has... is. Has a ha- the album features a song that simply has Greta's famous famous speech on it. She is one of the biggest faces, not only of the political landscape this year, but also of the pop culture trends. So we ran some polls earlier on the subject to see what the public thinks about young protesters, in which we found that 76% of people think it's OK for children to miss school in order to protest for the climate. Whilst climate change is one of the bigger subjects to cause protest this year, another big one, and especially recently, is about racism in football. And now joining us in the studio is Sam McCulloch to talk about this some more. Racism in football and the protests that rise against it dates back to the early 1900s. William Dean was one of the first black footballers in England, playing for the oldest league club, Notts County. In 1938, he was subject to verbal racist abuse from an opposing fan. In the protest to this, he actually punched the fan in the face, with a nearby policeman having to intervene. Instead of of arresting Dean, he shook the centre-forward's hand, and despite the show of unity, racism is still present in the sport over 80 years later. In fact, in just the last couple of weeks, England's national team was subject to severe racial abuse when playing away at Bulgaria. And just a week later, Haringey Borough players walked off the pitch in an FA Cup match after their keeper, Valerie Pagetat, was subject to racist chanting from Yeovil fans. Now, two of them were were arrested but have since been released on bail. The match was suspended and will be replayed tomorrow night. But I do wonder if the FA should have banned Yeovil from the competition. Even as a deterrent, it does seem a bit extreme. What do you think about this, Tom? Well, personally, I believe that Yeovil should have been banned from the tournament because these things, obviously, as you've just said, racism in football is not a new thing. But no matter how far down the line we go, it still seems to come up. And I think it should be the harsher punishments like this that might actually make a change. And what if it accidentally affects uh, people who are not? making racist comments i feel like the people who get caught up in it that might be unlucky but really it's about getting those harsher sentences i think and harsher punishments in order to make the bigger deterrent against people committing racist abuse against footballers all right fair enough um it almost seems like football is one of the last safe havens for hate speech as it can hide in the crowds Unfortunately, this can even be seen in my local football team, Portsmouth FC, and I was actually talking to an event steward the other day. Part of his job is to manage fans at Fratton Fortress, and he was telling me that the problem with stadiums is that they are too large for all the staff to cover. Robin Hubbard of Vivian Security had this to say about racism in football. Occasionally what will happen is a football player will perform not to his expected standards in a game. You'll get members, you know, the audience who are supporting that team can get a bit aggressive. And sometimes these racial slurs will pop out. It's a heated game and people are obviously frustrated and they're just trying to find things to say. You don't usually hear the N word, 
you will normally hear things like monkey and stuff, things like that. It doesn't happen often at all. And when it does happen, it's it's really difficult because, you know, you'll find you'll have to actually confront them about it. And the way I deal with it is I will say, hey, that's completely unacceptable. Please do not say it. And then if they comply and they apologize, genuinely, I will try to de-escalate the situation, maybe take them out of the stadium area, just away from the crowds and talk to them there. Or um, if they do continue to be aggressive, we will escort them out of the stadium. Representing the fans, Pompey's biggest supporter, John Westwood, has mentioned in past interviews that he finds football as a place for people to vent their inner feelings and frustrations. I guess this is some sort of catharsis, and it can explain some of the motives behind offensive hate speech, but in my humble opinion, it is still inexcusable. Thank you very much, Sam. Clearly, either way, the subject is both interesting and controversial. So, Gracie, after all of this, do you think that you would now go to a protest? Um, after learning everything that we've spoken about today, I do think I would go to one. I do think it is such a good act of freedom of speech and freedom of expression, but I don't know how effective they are and how effective it would be. Yeah, clearly there's a lot of different ways of protesting. Mm. And it's probably something to do with the people, the cause, yeah. and a mix of things that works out as to whether it's a successful one or not. Definitely. Um, that's all for us today. Um, thank you for listening. You can find us on Spotify. Um, I've been Gracie Leader. Uh, I've been Tom Lawrence. Thank, thank you, you very much.